Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. My guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is the 27th Prime Minister of Australia, Julia Gillard. Born in Wales, Julia and her family moved to Adelaide when she was very young. She practised as an industrial lawyer before moving into politics, first as a staffer and then as an MP. Julia entered the federal parliament in 1998 and she was quickly promoted to the shadow cabinet. In 2006, she became the deputy leader of the Labor Party and after the 2007 election, she became Australia's first female deputy prime minister. Julia held the education, employment and workplace relations and social inclusion portfolios in the first Rudd government. In June 2010, Julia became Australia's first female Prime Minister, and she served in that office until 2013. Julia has a number of interesting roles now, including chairing Beyond Blue, the Global Partnership for Education, and the Wellcome Trust. She's also a non-resident distinguished senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, an organisation with which I'm also affiliated. Finally, Julia has her own podcast called A Podcast of One's Own. So we're competitors in a way, although her numbers are better than mine so far. Thank you, Julia Gillard, for joining me from London for the Director's Chair. Thank you, Michael. Great to be with you. Let's start at the beginning, Julia. You were born in Barry in Wales. Tell us a bit about your folks, John and Moira, and their lives and what brought you all to Australia. I don't have any original recollections of Wales. We left when I was four, so too young to have memories. But I was born there and my parents took the decision that a move to Australia would be better for us economically, which of course it did turn out to be better for the family, uh, but also better for me personally. I'd been quite unwell as a young baby. I suffered with bronchial pneumonia, so they'd received advice to try and look for a warmer climate, though I'm always careful when I say that now because I get notes from the Welsh Tourism Board urging me (laughs) not to give the impression that Wales is a cold place, Mm -hmm. a cold and inhospitable place. Mm. Uh, So please hear the message that Wales is a beautiful place, Mm -hmm. Uh, but my parents did decide that Australia would give us a better opportunity in life, and so we made the journey over in 1966 in the era that there was assisted passage for suitable migrants. You could migrate for £10, hence the saying £10 poms. Mm -hmm. And Wales has produced a number of interesting politicians. One of them, Nye Bevan, uh, was, I think, a bit of an inspiration for you. Why was that? I'm always admiring of politicians who leave a legacy that lasts and lasts. And of course, Nye Bevan is remembered as the father of the National Health Service, which is uh, much loved and much applauded in the United Kingdom, particularly right now, given the heroic role that NHS staff have played during the pandemic. So they feel about the NHS the way that we feel about Medicare. It's an important national institution and says a great deal about who we are. And so I'm always very admiring of people who can leave that kind of legacy behind them. When did you start thinking about people like that and when did you first set your sights on a career in public life? Well, I didn't set my sights on a career in public life until I was well and truly an adult. I wasn't someone who was dreaming of it as a school child. Uh, I didn't come from the sort of background where you would have imagined any of that was possible. 
but I had an early interest in sort of contemporary affairs, uh, which I got from my father. My father was very interested in politics. He was a shift worker, so he would be home some days uh, and he would listen to Question Time on the radio. Uh, He'd talk to you about what was happening in politics. Uh, When we were a little bit older, we would be propped up in front of shows like Four Corners to learn about big issues in the world. So that was always part of the background. And, of course, you know, to keep uh, a sense in my sister and I, that we were from Wales and to keep us in some connection with our Welsh heritage. You know, mum and dad would talk about all things Welsh, which would range from Dylan Thomas to Welsh cakes to Nye Bevan. So that was part of the upbringing as well. All right. So you grew up in Adelaide, you became an adult, you gravitated towards labour politics, you practised as an industrial lawyer. As I mentioned, you were a staffer. You entered the federal parliament in 1998. What were the things that you were passionate about when you went into parliament? What took you into public life? What took me into public life was a connection to education and what I would term the politics of opportunity. What got me first active, raising my voice, thinking about public policy, so a step above just musing about contemporary affairs, uh, was being at university and seeing some major education cutbacks under the Philip Lynch Razor Gang, if people remember that, under the Malcolm Fraser government. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many of your listeners would have to go and dig in a history book to have any sense of any of that. But there was a period where there were some quite big mooted changes to university funding. Education had always been very highly prized in my family home. Neither of my parents got to finish secondary school. They wanted a different pathway for my sister and I. They wanted us to go to university. I did go to university. And so I had a very clear sense that anything that got in the way of an ordinary kid like me having that kind of opportunity was wrong. And so I got involved in campaigning. That took me into student politics, student unionism. That took me into ever greater levels of advocacy around education policy. And it was that that was the real motivation to try my hand and to seek election to parliament. And you made education your lodestar for the first period that you were in parliament, but then Labor's elected to government in 2007. You become the deputy prime minister. Australia and the world is mugged by the global financial crisis, I guess. So increasingly, you're engaged in international issues and national security issues. And then you become prime minister. And I'm really interested in the process about becoming accustomed to international policy and foreign policy. I remember on one of your first trips, you made a comment to the effect that foreign policy wasn't your passion, that you'd gone into politics for education reasons and for domestic policy reasons, which I think is the case for most MPs. But then you had to learn on the job, as it were. So tell me about that. And to what extent did you find the same skills that made you successful in domestic politics? Do they flow over into international politics? How similar or different is it to domestic politics? Sure. I mean, I, of course, uh, had a consciousness, even right back to my student political days, that we uh, lived in a world where all of the interconnections mattered. 
I mean, right back to student political days, the international student movement was a reflection of the geopolitics of the time, uh, most particularly a reflection of the Cold War between the US and Russia, and there was much contesting uh, within international student organisations as to who was influencing what. Uh, so, mm. you know, that understanding of living in this world and uh, needing uh, to get a view, have an analysis of how the world operated had always been with me. But the passionate impulse for me was this politics of opportunity, changing lives, changing them in Australia. When we moved into government, you know, well, I guess I would say even when I first moved into parliament, uh, I got more and more familiar with a series of foreign affairs issues. I went on a range of uh, trips overseas. I'm a big advocate of Australian politicians going on trips overseas. I know often in the media that's reported as, you know, a politician mm. on another junket, you know, off in swanky hotels and all the rest <laughs> of it. And of course, there should be good scrutiny of the costs of all of these things, but we should always uh, be very uh, generous in the entitlements to allow politicians to go overseas. It's a very important part of your learning and development. So I'd been through all of that, you know, as Deputy Prime Minister, I sat in the National Security Committee and chaired it on occasions. Uh, so this wasn't one big leap from sort of not knowing anything mm -hmm. into being Prime Minister. It was more of a steady pace up, but with a leap at the end, because mm -hmm. there is a difference between being in any other job and being in the Prime Ministerial Chair. In terms of the you know, skills and practices of it. I think many of those are the same as the skills and practices you learn for domestic politics. But of course, the knowledge base is different. You need to immerse yourself in the knowledge base about global affairs, the perspectives that Australia takes on the world. But the day-to-day -day practice of analysing policy, working out what the change is that you want to make, coming up with the strategy to pursue that change, connecting and persuading individuals to come with you on that journey of change. Many of those skills translate, I think, from the international sphere to the domestic sphere and back again. One of the leaders, of course, who was active on the international stage when you were in office was President Obama. And there was those great images from early 2011 when you visited the White House and you handballed a Sharon around the Oval Office with Obama. What did you find uh, he was like to deal with? Oh, he was fantastic to deal with. I mean, he is a man of great values, a man of very uh, superior uh, interpersonal skills. He's very charming. He certainly uh, has the ability, I think, to put the most complex ideas into uh, simple words and to explain them to the community, to the electorate, to the people around him. Uh, he's a dignified individual, a generous individual. One of my abiding memories of him is when he visited Australia and we were walking through Parliament House together. And Michael, you, of course, are no stranger to Parliament House. You've been there many, many times. And you would know that when Parliament's in full operation, there are attendants that are standing at the doors on mm -hmm. the House of Rep side wearing green, on the Senate side wearing red. And as I moved through Parliament House with President Obama, you know, 
every one of those attendants that we passed, he acknowledged with a hello, sir, hello, ma'am, a quick hello. Obviously, he couldn't get bogged down in a 10-minute conversation because he had a, you know, crushingly big Mm -hmm. uh, program to acquit. But that very decent act of, you know, acknowledging everybody he walked past, not having this self-perception that, you know, I'm the guy, I'm the president of the US and I'm above Mm. acknowledging an attendant at a parliamentary door. Mm. I think that said everything about him as a human being and as a leader. Now, when he was in Parliament House on that visit, he gave the famous Canberra speech in which he announced the American pivot to Asia. And also on that trip, uh, you and President Obama announced that there would be a presence of US Marines in Darwin. What did you think at the time of the US pivot to Asia and what was your thinking? Why did you think it was in Australia's interest that there would be this presence? Well, I think it is without doubt in Australia's interest that the US is deeply engaged in our region. And that has been you know, bipartisan foreign policy settings for, uh, well, forever might be uh, too long a word, but certainly uh, since uh, post-World War II. So uh, we, I think, were making a new contribution to that long-standing bipartisan view that deep engagement by the US in our region of the world is in Australia's interest. I took the view that as our region was changing and developing, It was time to take a stride forward in our alliance with the US, the stride that they wanted us to take, and which I did view in our interests was to have the training of the Marines and other uh, defence connections which would take place on Australian soil. I realised that that could be very controversial with the Australian community. After all, the history, uh, political history around, you know, foreign bases and all of the uh, movements that there have been over time about, you know, getting uh, foreign bases in Australia closed, all of the dialogue around Pine Gap and all the rest of it, you would be aware of all of that. But I did think that whatever might come in terms of domestic controversy, it was worth it. As it happened, it was not uh, that controversial. It didn't seem to fall into that sort of slipstream of some of the things that had gone before about American defence engagement with Mm. Australia. Next month, as you know, we're marking the 70th anniversary of the signing of the ANZUS Treaty at the Presidio in San Francisco. As you alluded to then, sometimes the alliance is controversial in Australia, probably more on the left than on the right, and people say, we're a lickspittle of the United States, or they say it retards our relations with Asia. Just at a practical level, how did you think about it? Did you find it valuable? Did you find it you know, useful that you had certain access or entree in the United States? How did it affect your relations with leaders in Asia, for example, that, that Australia was allied to the United States? Well, I'm very uh, happy to answer that question, but just as we're musing about this time past, Uh, We should remember, I'm pretty sure the Daily Telegraph after the announcement of the Marines uh, went with the headline, US bases get the nod because they had cheekily uplifted a line from a Peter Garrett uh, Midnight Oil song. Uh, And, uh, you know, Peter Garrett at that stage was a very senior minister in the government. And I do remember very clearly the meeting between President Obama and Peter Garrett, where we were explaining that Peter Garrett was a rock star and President Obama like, 
you were a rock star and then you went into politics? <laughs> like what sort of person would leave being a rock star uh, to become a politician? Surely most people went into politics because they couldn't sing but because they'd quite like to be rock stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a very delightful moment. On the more substantive question you've asked me, uh, I don't I don't think this retards Australia's ability to make its way in the world or to make its way in the region. And in terms of our relationships with countries of our region, it is well and truly priced in. Mm. It's not like we've snuck up on anybody, uh, you know, oops, we forgot to tell you we've got an alliance with the US. You know, this has been uh, part of the architecture for decades and decades and decades. And so it's priced in and the art form uh, of Australia's domestic outlook on how it is going to engage with our region. I think the art form is to work out how we balance and pursue at the same time both our alliance with the US and ever deeper relations with the countries of our region. And of course, uh, that particularly takes us to China, but the need for ever deeper relations is broader than China. And that is the outlook that we uh, made the centre of the Australia in the Asian Century document that we released uh, when I was in government as a sort of guiding national policy and impulse around how we would make our way in a century, which was largely going to be defined by growth and development in our part of the world. Mm -hmm. And I remember the launch of that uh, white paper because it was at the Bly Street headquarters of, of the Institute. It provided a very optimistic view of the opportunities in Asia for Australia. How much darker has the strategic picture in Asia got since then, do you think? I think uh, there have been a, a range of things that have changed since that white paper. I don't think its fundamental conclusions have dated. I think the fundamental conclusions are right. But the degree of difficulty in pursuing that strategy has increased and has increased because as China has continued uh, to emerge in the world, and of course the language we always use is talking about uh, welcoming China's rise into the global rules-based order, uh, what of course we're increasingly seeing is a continuation of China's rise undoubtedly, but with a very uh, strong uh, sense of itself Uh, with a very assertive foreign policy posture and with a desire to be an establisher of rules of the road. So we more now have a picture of a contending uh, views, contending uh, architecture, contending ways of seeing the world. Uh, And that makes it a more difficult environment uh, for everyone, uh, but including for Australia to manoeuvre, ultimately in the direction I've suggested, but the degree of difficulty of doing that is higher. Julia, when you were Prime Minister, Australians were serving in Afghanistan uh, alongside the United States and many other allies. Next week, that chapter of history will draw to a close when US troops are scheduled to pull out of Afghanistan. How do you reflect back on that conflict and Australia's participation in it? Well, like uh, I think probably uh, every other Australian and billions of people around the world, uh, it has been heartrending to watch the uh, footage uh, coming out of Afghanistan and the desperation and chaos. 
uh, as people literally run for their lives uh, and people who have uh, helped Australian forces, uh, foreign forces generally, uh, feminists, outspoken uh, women, uh, women in the media who are now at such risk. And so uh, the manner of the exit has and continues to truly trouble me. And uh, as we're speaking, Michael, there is still some time to go in terms of getting people out. And I think both of us would very much be hoping that what can happen in terms of rescuing people and getting them out over the next few days is effective. So the signs as we're talking are fairly grim and I think both of us would acknowledge that. In terms of a broader reflection on Afghanistan, I mean, we went uh, because of, you know, 9-11, uh, because of our alliance and friendship with the people of the United States who were attacked on their own soil. And we went to find uh, Osama bin Laden and to degrade the Al-Qaeda network. And uh, that mission was, was accomplished. Of course, the world then became distracted, and particularly the US, uh, by the engagement in Iraq. Uh, and a number of years went by before there was a more uh, thoughtful and resourced return to Afghanistan and the mission took on a greater characteristic of nation building. I think when we look across the broad sweep of that, the anti-terrorism work was vital, did make a difference, has made a difference. I think the nation building work, uh, people might now look and say all of that uh, is being lost but I have a, a slightly more optimistic view than that. I think the nation of Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan, have been changed by this period. I think their connections with the world, their you know telecommunications connections, education, uh, their perception of themselves, their perception of their ability to uh, trade and to uh, build an economy, uh, their perceptions of what civil society is and how it functions. Those things have been changed through this period. And I think that that will mean uh, that the population ultimately has views and aspirations that they will push for, and we will watch that unfold. And the uh, rhetoric uh, coming out of uh, spokespeople for the Taliban about how they have changed now how much of that is just uh, words and how much of that is any form of substance is obviously mm. uh, still to be shown. Uh, and, you know, you and I could uh, speculate in all directions now, but we can't truly, truly know until we see it unfold. But the very fact that they feel the need to say those things, I think, is a recognition that there is a difference to Afghanistan today, to the Afghanistan uh, that they had power within uh, before all of this. So we'll see, but our role uh, as a global community should not simply be watching. Our role as a global community should be engaged. Mm. Whilst it's obviously going to be different, the global community has a range of tools at its disposal, uh, both positive and negative, uh, aid and development monies, potentially sanctions and other things uh, that can help uh, structure our relationship with Afghanistan and make a difference to the treatment of the people of Afghanistan. 
All right. One of the important foreign policy decisions you made as Prime Minister was to reverse the ban on exporting uranium to India. Why did you decide that? This had become a big obstacle, a very big obstacle in our bilateral relationship with India. And, you know, if you look at uh, our world, uh, you look at our region, uh, obviously India is a principal player, uh, the world's largest democracy, and it is in Australia's national interest to have the best possible bilateral relationship with India. And particularly as the shape of our region changes over time, that I think needs to be a major cornerstone of how we engage with our region. And the issue around uranium had gone beyond being one of kind of uh, just substance, you know, we can't buy Australian uranium to one of pride and prestige. You know, actually, the delivery of uranium wasn't really the issue because they had good supplies of uranium. It wasn't like uh, India wasn't doing a whole series of things that otherwise wanted to do uh, because Australian uranium wasn't turning up. But it had become a question of pride and prestige, and it was seen to encapsulate an attitude from Australia to India. So it had become a blockage in the relationship, which I thought needed to be cleared out of the way. Speaking of India, the Quad is back since you left office, and it's now been elevated to the leaders' level. And President Biden hosted the first meeting of the Quad leaders in March. What do you think about the Quad? Is this a useful and positive response to changes in the world? Yes, the Quad is back. My view is all structures, including the Quad, that uh, help us more deeply engage, uh, that help uh, the US more deeply engage in the region is ultimately in Australia's national interest. Of course, there are always uh, many, many layers of foreign policy debate about which structures would be absolutely the best structures. Uh, And on many of those questions, reasonable people can differ. But in the world of uh, practical politics, I think engagement at leaders' level is vital. uh, And I think, therefore, the Quad is a good development. Let me ask you about the United Nations. Your predecessor, Kevin Rudd, launched Australia's bid for a seat on the UN Security Council for the 2013-2014 term. And as Prime Minister, you picked up the baton in that race and Australia got over the line. We won a seat on the Security Council. Let me ask you why that was such a controversial thing. Why does Australia have a hang-up about running for such roles? Why would we have a domestic debate about wanting to be heard on the most important crisis management forum in the world? And why do you think it's important that Australia puts itself forward for this kind of position periodically? I think it's uh, an outworking in some ways of the uh, Australian uh, character and our instinctive kind of larrikinism and consequently uh, sceptical eye uh, on authority structures and uh, people in power and people who would be seen, uh, to use that great Australian expression, as getting up themselves. Um, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a sort of curious foreign policy outworking um, of all of that Australian character. And so much of that about the Australian character is so precious to us and our culture and who we are. 
you know, one of the stories I tell um, overseas uh, about the Australian character and culture, you know, as Prime Minister, I visited a lot of schools and it wouldn't matter whether you were in a primary school or a secondary school, you know, children would run up to you and say, Julia, Julia, Julia. And there wouldn't be too many other nations on earth, I really can't think of one, uh, where school children would think it was appropriate. Indeed, they wouldn't even stop to ask themselves the question, is it appropriate for me to address the Prime Minister by her first name? They just do. And it wasn't obviously me. I've got a very clear recollection when I was a very young MP of walking through Parliament House and a school group chorusing out to John Howard as he walked by, John, John, John. So uh, that egalitarianism, larrikinism, I think it's a wonderful trait. But I think this outworking into scepticism about Australia wanting to hold its head high in the major councils of the world, including the Security Council, is something that we need to talk about and address and uh, counteract because these things are incredibly important for Australia. Just before I ask you about your life after politics, I note that Angela Merkel is soon due to leave politics after having served as Chancellor for nearly 16 years, and that took in the time when you were in office. What were your impressions of Merkel? And were there any other leaders? You've mentioned President Obama, but but were there any other leaders that really impressed you that you really enjoyed working with when you were PM? Oh, look, I'm a very big, uh, a very big Chancellor Merkel fan for every reason people would talk about in terms of her role in Germany on the global stage. I'm also a fan from a feminist perspective because I went to uh, uh, many international meetings uh, where the numbers of women were very small indeed. And yes, we would uh, have a chat in, in the bathroom, in the ladies, and Angela Merkel does speak some English. Uh, obviously, uh, she uh, works through a translator on the international stage, which is completely understandable. But you would have dialogue and discussions about uh, the uh, view of women leaders in the world and the scarcity of women leaders. And I'm admiring, uh, truly admiring of her for the way that she's uh, forged ahead and had a female figure of her authority on the world stage. And I can't count the number of times I would have seen photographs of global events uh, where she was the only female leader of truly impactful events. Uh, and so my hope for her now is that she uh, writes. I do hope that she uh, writes about her time in office and her life, uh, but I also hope she writes on this question about being a female leader. Just on that, Julia, when you were having a chat with her in the margins, did you ever have a chuckle about you know which male leaders were the worst mansplainers? <laughs> uh, I couldn't possibly confirm or deny that, I don't think. We might, uh, might set off a chain of foreign policy reaction that we don't want to. In terms of uh, other leaders, I worked very well with President Yudhiyono and our relationship with Indonesia, obviously uh, incredibly important to us, but uh, he was a great interlocutor and we, I think, developed a strong personal relationship. I uh, worked well with David Cameron uh, as Prime Minister in the UK. Obviously, uh, David Cameron's had some uh, issues to deal with in his post-prime ministerial life, uh, and I'm not an admirer of the Brexit 
move by the UK, which of course uh, mm-hmm. started when he decided to call the referendum. But we did work well together and he did stand on the world stage for some uh, important uh, values, including being uh, the first male leader to talk about a whole set of gender equality issues, including the very difficult uh, issue of female genital mutilation and being prepared to use Britain's uh, aid and development budget and foreign policy authority uh, to try and lead a global campaign against FGM. So I'm admiring of that and spoke uh, on a number of occasions to him about that work. I uh, worked well with uh, President Calderon of Mexico. Of course, that's, uh, we would say, potentially not a principal foreign policy relationship, but uh, he led a G20 uh, while I was Prime Minister. I've uh, continued to admire his work on the global stage since he exited the uh, presidency. He's very deeply involved in the work on climate change. So, you know, a range of uh, people around the world, many of whom I'm still in contact with. So I wouldn't want to say that's an exclusive group. They're the ones that are at top of mind now. But uh, you do end up developing many deep relationships, indeed friendships. Is there a sort of texting club of former leaders where you text each other and, you know, you say, can you believe he said that? (laughs) Uh, No, we're not all hanging out in a cubby house together, Uh, but uh, these relationships uh, do matter and uh, people do tend, I mean, not not everybody, but people do tend to go on and pursue some international cause, whether they do that as their central impulse or whether they do that as a philanthropic sideline to other work that they're doing. Uh, But people do tend to stay engaged. Thinking about it now, of course, I've I've forgotten uh, two that I'm still very much in contact with. My counterpart in uh, New Zealand was John Key, and we uh, became uh, personal friends. We're still in very good contact. And, of course, uh, Helen Clark. Uh, went on to lead a UN agency and we're in very strong contact still and she's a remarkable woman. Well, you mentioned before that most former leaders stay engaged in policy issues and in international issues and that's certainly the case for you. You serve in a number of interesting and important roles. What is it about your work at the moment that you enjoy the most? Well, I still love it. I mean, the the thing that is the best about politics, uh, whether it's uh, as a parliamentarian or politics in the sense of uh, advocacy and the pursuing of causes more generally, the best thing about any of that is when you uh, agitate for change and you see it happen. Uh, And so the heartwarming thing for me still is whether through the Global Partnership for Education, the Campaign for Female Education, the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, or indeed my new work chairing the Wellcome Trust, investing in health and medical research and having urgently supported a number of things to address the COVID pandemic. It's when you can see things move from words to action in a way that changes lives. You're living in the UK at the moment. A number of the institutions with which you're involved are UK institutions. Is there a certain freedom as a former Prime Minister in living outside Australia? Well, I I love being being at home. I love being at home. And I did um, structure this life 
pre the pandemic, uh, when it was, of course, possible to think, oh, well, I'll be in Australia for a few months and then I'll do a trip to the UK and then I'll come back. And of course, the coming and going uh, is not Mm. what it used to be, uh, as you and I well and truly know. Uh, So I am looking forward, as is the rest of the world, to a time where uh, that uh, happens again. And I know Australians are very much looking forward to a time when life normalises in Australia and uh, families uh, who have relatives overseas are able to have them visit or go and visit them. So I love being at home. But yes, there is something that comes with being in a place where you are more anonymous. You know, in Australia, when I walk down a street, I'm obviously still very recognisable. I like it when people come up and have a chat, take a selfie, whatever. Obviously, this is in pre-social distancing times. I'm very happy to uh, stay engaged in that way with uh, Australians. Uh, But it is uh, also nice to have the experience of Uh, walking down a street, going into a shop and no one knowing who you are. And it's uh, nice to uh, be in an environment where people know that you were Prime Minister of Australia. Of course, people know that about me. But their principal judgment of you is not based on some deep understanding of Australian politics, but it's based on how they're interacting with you now and the work you're doing now. Now, that doesn't mean that I mind engaging around what I did as Prime Minister. I'm proud of it, uh, happy to talk about it. Uh, But my predisposition as an individual is to look forward, not back. And so just engaging with people who are meeting you anew and not necessarily having any great preconceptions about what you're going to be like because they haven't studied your political track record. There is something refreshing in that. Julia, you mentioned the pandemic. The UK and Australian experiences and responses to the coronavirus have been markedly different. Ordinarily, uh, Australia and the UK are very like-minded, but we've taken very different approaches in terms of the international borders, but also the speed of the rollout of the vaccine. And the general approach seems to be quite different. You have a unique position as a former Australian PM who's living at the moment in the UK. Why do you think the Australian and British responses to the coronavirus pandemic have been so different? I think, you know, there are some things about uh, size and geography uh, that uh, dictate responses. Uh, And so, I think uh, for the UK with, and of course we are in a, in a post-Brexit era, but even in a post-Brexit era, the UK's uh, interconnections with Europe, the number of families, jobs, businesses, uh, you know, the web of interconnections into Europe, uh, that the concept of quickly shutting borders uh, and uh, keeping people from movement in and out uh, you know, just sits far more uncomfortably for the UK. And of course, the volumes are hugely different. You know, when uh, hopping across is, uh, you know, a, an hour, two hours compared with, you know, being as you and I uh, know from Australia, uh, what seems um, endless flights just to make the first leg <laughs> and then you've got to do the second leg. Uh, so the, the volumes are different. 
So I think that, you know, that's the explanation in many ways for the pivot point decision at the start about whether or not you close the borders. And a lot flows from that decision Mm. about pandemic responses. Uh, And that takes us to where we are now, where the UK, of course, had huge virus numbers, huge case numbers. Uh, It's had a large death toll, even by the time you're looking at it per capita and comparing it with comparable nations. Uh, It's a large death toll. That, though, how grim the circumstances were, I think, created huge incentives in everyone uh, from the Prime Minister uh, down to families right around the country to rush for the vaccine. And the fact that the AstraZeneca vaccine is the Oxford vaccine uh, means, I think, a whole set of hesitancies around the AstraZeneca vaccine have not been manifest in the UK. People have rushed for the vaccine. Whatever is available, they've rushed for it. And that, uh, I think, is a contrast with where Australia has found itself in recent months, though, of course, uh, with uh, the scale and dimension of current lockdowns, uh, the rush for the vaccine, I think, is well and truly in train now. People who might, at an earlier stage when there were no cases in the community, have said to themselves, oh, I'll wait and see, uh, now understand the wisdom of getting the vaccine as soon as uh, supply permits you to get it in your arm. Are you looking forward to the moment when Australia opens back up to the world in a, in a safe way, obviously? But do you think it's important that sooner rather than later, Australia open back up to the world? It's uh, not for me. I'll leave it to my um, uh, federal uh, Labor uh, friends to be putting uh, their views about what the opening up strategy should be. Uh, So it's not for me to nominate, uh, you know, percentage of vaccinations or anything like that. But I think, you know, basically everybody would be looking forward to a time, wouldn't they, when uh, Australia can open up to the world in a COVID-managed way as possible. I meet people in the UK uh, who, you know, have uh, family and friends in Australia, so Aussies who have lived in the UK for many years, you know, blended families, Aussies who married Brits and all the rest of it, who haven't been able to see aged parents, uh, new grandchildren, you know, you name it, uh, for all of the pandemic. And I think the joy that will come when people can be reunited uh, will be profound. We will see, you know, any, any amount of footage at airport gates when families emerge from the other side of the world and are finally back together. We will see many, many scenes of uh, tears of joy. Well, I must say I'm very much looking forward to witnessing and indeed participating in some of those scenes myself in the future. Julia, I've really enjoyed our discussion today. Thank you for telling us about your path through life from Barry to Adelaide to Melbourne to Canberra and now to London and for telling us about some of your experiences as Prime Minister. Thank you very much, Julia Gillard, for joining me today on The Director's Chair. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove. Thanks for listening and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair. 